0: In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for Sure come from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles, where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. Okay, so maybe firstly, if you can define who you are. So.
1: Um yeah, so in, in terms of kind of how I see myself, uh, obviously uh, a woman <laughs> in a field where, you know, we're obviously a minority. I see myself as a pioneer uh, in the field, uh, particularly in the area of social robotics and human robot interaction. Uh, I see myself as an innovator and an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I founded a startup company called Jibo to try to bring social robots to the mass consumer market. Um, you know, I see myself as a mother <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a wife. You know, <laughs> all of these things also are really deeply important to me. Um, I see myself as a as a mentor. You know, I have a, a group of of really brilliant, talented uh, graduate and undergraduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take their, their futures very seriously. And, um, I see myself as an agent for broader positive change. You know, when I see something that I think, uh, could be more equitable, can be more fair, could be better. I try to, I try to tackle that head on. So, you know, at MIT, uh, I direct a new initiative, called RAISE, that stands for Responsible AI for Social Empowerment and Education, because uh, AI is transforming everything. You know, I'd say the AI genie is out of the bottle. <laughs> it's more than computer science. It's more than, you know, these technical fields. It's, it's for everyone. It's in society. And, you know, we've seen, you know, tremendous innovation and positive things because of things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we've certainly seen many examples where it has not gone as expected, right? And it's exacerbated inequity and so forth. So um, we've seen how it can, you know, I've designed systems that do this. We've seen how AI can shape people's ideas and opinions and behaviors, you know, and I try to do that to help people to succeed and to flourish. Doesn't have to necessarily be the case, right? And so, you know, and we know the field is not diverse or inclusive, right? We're a long way from that. And so I have a big effort on, you know, through that initiative to try to uh, create an AI literate society and um, help inspire underrepresented groups. So whether it's, you know, younger students, K-12, you know, as they think about professions and going into careers or even the adult workforce, um, how do we how do we open the magic of this field in a way that people feel empowered to use it? to create solutions for their communities who they feel that they represent those communities. So, you know, again, that's just another example of where I see something that I, you know, I'd like to see a a better world (laughs) and I'm trying to take action to move, you know, towards that direction with obviously an amazing group of people. I can't do any of these things all by myself. Right. So I guess in that regard, I see myself hopefully as, as as uh, someone who who leads by making people feel that they are a part of something that they care passionately about, and trying to facilitate that and support that, um, so that we all feel like we can make a positive change together. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Awesome. So maybe I want to go again for since you are one of the in social robotics, and I think that. That's something very inspiring. I would like to scan the design because I think that's something I find very intriguing. That's the way I think and when you are a graduate student. The way of thinking of the design at this time because I think that's very important. The design way of the design and way of thinking about designing social robots. Back in more than twenty years, what is sort of your mind early in this designing? For example, Leonardo or Casme, these early robots.
1: Yeah, so you know, way back, you know, before before Kismet, before my PhD work, Kismet's you know kind of widely regarded as the world's first you know social autonomous social robot. Um, You know, before that, um, I was working uh, at MIT as a graduate student um, with Professor Rod Brooks at the time. In the started off to be the mobile robotics group. And um, then it transitioned to be the humanoid robotics group. But it was, you know, initially about autonomy, building autonomous robots, autonomous mobile robots. And um, when we started to shift to look to humanoids early on, you know, a, a lot of the reason why people were interested in humanoid robots is obviously because so much of our, you know, human engineered environment is for the human morphology. So if you want to build a robot that can, navigate stairs in human spaces and use human artifacts and so forth. The human morphology made a lot of sense, but you didn't hear a lot of people talking about the ability for people to interact and collaborate you know, and, and, and derive value from these kinds of technologies in terms of, you know, the everyday person. So, I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, I kind of liken it to the moment where computers were the huge expensive machines kind of in back rooms that only experts knew how to use. And then, you know, personal computer revolution came, people started asking, what does it mean for anyone to be able to use a computer, right? I, I kind of use social robotics as that same question for robots, where robots were expensive kind of, you know, extravagant technologies at the time. Right. What would what would it mean literally for anyone to be able to interact and, and, and get value from interacting with a autonomous robot? And, you know, in terms of the design and the experience, it's like, so so what's, what is the universal interface, you know, you know, rather than expecting, you know, young children or older adults to study manuals on how to interact with a robot, you know, the thought was the social interface was, was the universal interface. And we already knew from science fiction and, you know, people naturally anthropomorphized, you know, autonomous robots, whether they looked humanoid or not, you know, just these cues of animacy, um, people readily would anthropomorphize, them, maybe not treat them exactly human, but as a living thing, as a creature. And so it seemed it was something that people are already, you know, naturally inclined or predisposed to do. So then the challenge was, how do you design a robot that can support its end of that interaction, right? So it's, you know, one thing to have people treat a robot socially like a, you know, like an animate creature, it's a completely different question on how the robot can actually understand those cues, respond in a reasonable way, <laughs> collaborate with people. Um, and so, you know, that was the original kind of uh, impetus around the social interface. And of course, when people interact with each other, it's not just about cognitively conveying information. You know, we're profoundly social and emotional beings. That's a critical part of how we interact, how we understand the world around us. And so, you know, I think, you know, from very, you know, early on at that time, the question of how do we build autonomous robots with social and emotional intelligence was kind of a radical idea, you know, not just intelligence, but the behavior to go along with it, to really be in that dynamic interaction with people. Um and so it just opened up a whole, whole area. Uh, and I think, you know, whenever you propose something that's, you know, that kind of is that different from the status quo and what kind of the accepted, you know, so-called interesting problems were to work on, you know, during the day. I think it was an idea and a perspective whose time was right, because at the time, you know, so Japan was already, you know, thinking about autonomous robots, and in fact, humanoid robots, um, because they understood they have this, you know, rapidly aging society, and they were thinking around innovations and technologies to help their society, you know, deal with that, that demographic shift. So, you know, when you propose an idea as radical as what if you could build a robot that literally anyone could interact with That's socially and emotionally intelligence? I mean, there was already a really, you know, call it a killer app. But I mean, a really significant use case that people got it. Yes, people who are not experts in robotics and AI are going to have to be able to interact with these technologies if it's going to help people age with independence, et cetera, et cetera. So, it, you know, timing is often, you know a big part of when something becomes successful and, 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 you know, takes off. And so I think it was a culmination uh, of the timing of of posing that question. It was also a really fascinating time in human-computer interaction and, um, uh, I mean, psychology in general, right? So, you know, if you look at kind of the bigger swirl of ideas, particularly, you know, around MIT specifically, but even more broadly, You know, for many years, kind of emotion was kind of looked down upon as a topic to study in psychology. And at that time, you had just started to see some, you know, very influential books about affective science and neuroscience and emotion and intelligent decision making like Antonio Damasio. So those ideas were starting to swirl and be taken seriously that you can't have intelligent behavior without emotions, right? That was kind of a radical uh uh concept that was gaining you know traction we had you know ross picard right at the media lab you know right around the time i was doing work with social robots she was thinking about affective computing right we had just justine cassell also at the media lab who was looking at embodied conversational agents virtual humans but embodied conversational agents and so you know these were two amazing pioneering women who were also on my PhD committee, (laughs) you know, so, so these, these new burgeoning fields of AI and human computer interaction were just, you know, gaining traction. And so I, you know, the social robotics was kind of the physical robotic instantiation of a swirl again of ideas that were kind of all happening at that, at that time. Right. So, so, you know, the societal need, the swirl of intellectual ideas, you know, people actually taking that seriously and starting to think about how do you do it computationally. I think all of that fed into kind of the, the moment of like, why why Kismet wouldn't it happen? It's all of those things.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Maybe I want to ask you about maybe the missing, so what's the missing piece so far in social robots, the personal robots? You have the both experience now in academia and also from yeah, entrepreneurship and and you have been in the two worlds. From your experience in this long journey, what's still missing? If you can't tell, this is the point here.
1: Yeah, so I mean, in terms of what's missing in terms of seeing, you know, social robots, you know, kind of finally fulfilling our science fiction dreams of being a ubiquitous technology, you know, in our our human spaces. I mean, I I think in the the most basic sense, what's been missing is sort of, the killer billion dollar business case for it right i mean i think it's it's really that simple right so you know if we you know, and and you know maybe we're coming upon that now with again global aging society and so forth but but this sense of like if you're really gonna turn the research into you know a ubiquitous technology you need you need a viable business case. And it's not just enough to kind of hobble along. I mean, you probably want something that's like radically successful, like, you know, the personal computer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a challenge right now. And part of it's because, I mean, as we appreciate in robotics, building things can actually move and interact in the physical world. It is really hard versus having kind of pristine, purely digital information, right? I mean, it's messy. It's uncertain. I mean, it's just it's hard. It requires, you know, computation, you know, when we think about the energy efficiency of these things, you know, big improvements in battery technology, but, you know, and, and cloud computing, but these things are still like, you know, you could imagine that, you know, we, we would benefit if those things were even more and better, <laughs> you know, cheaper, more, you know, more, more powerful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's, um, we have this world now of conversational agents in a tube and talking speakers. And so when you talk about the mass consumer mindset, it's been challenging because, you know, people see that now as a nearest neighbor. Even if a robot can do more, manipulate the world physically, et cetera, et cetera, there's a sense now that I think that conversational AI, you know, 10,000 skills is cheap. <laughs> you know, you can get that for 40 bucks, right? So, So that is a kind of a business trend that's kind of like, working against us, right? So, so I think, you know, we need to kind of find again this really compelling business application that, you know, the physicality and the abilities of the robot are essential. Um, there's a price point that people are willing to pay, you know, whether it's a company or an individual, a consumer, like it has there has to be a market for it at a price people are willing to pay all these things have to align. I think, you know, they will eventually. I mean, I don't think anybody has ever doubted or questioned that there will be a time when autonomous robots are ubiquitous. It's just we have to find, we have to find that kind of killer business case for it to really like get out there in a big way. Otherwise, it's going to continue to be smaller opportunities, startups trying. You know, it's 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 it's, it's been definitely kind of fits and starts, but I think the derivative is positive. <laughs> I think we're getting closer <laughs> but we haven't quite nailed it yet you know we haven't quite nailed it yet yeah. Um, yeah. and there's again there's forces that are making it harder given other nearest neighbor technologies and now perceived price points and value of those technologies which you know obviously were extremely expensive to develop you know if you're a huge multi-billion dollar company you can kind of you know quote-unquote kind of give it away for free but if you're a startup. You actually got to make a profit, so it's just it's it's tough. It's tough for young companies, the innovative, disruptive. It's hard in robotics for young innovative because that's typically where disruption happens, is with startups, right? It's hard in robotics for 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 early stage companies to do that, right? Um, anyway, so I I think that's that's a big part, just a very practical part of what hasn't fallen in to place yet and kind of some of the forces that are, are making it challenging. Yeah, that's
0: a really good point. Maybe I want to ask you, your opinion. I think there's was discussion about, for example, the pet robots, for example, like dog robots or cat robots versus the actual cat or dog. That one of the cases. cases, for example, also for other companies they try using ARM robots, for example, helping elderly in home. For you, there's there is many factors here, the aspect that's connection, that we have the human and also, I think that what you have been working on, expression and movement, and that's how empathy increase and connection. But when you see this example, do you think in some cases it doesn't make sense to you? I mean, do you disagree with certain approaches in so- social robots? I don't know if you hold like controversial views or you disagree with certain approach in designing social robots, whether in academia or in social life.
1: Like, so, you know, society. I think, I mean, maybe one of the advantages of kind of the slow, <laughs> kind of the slow ubiquity of, of you know, social robots, in, you know, particularly because that's my area of expertise, is because it's not like you flip the switch and they're out there, you know, and millions affecting millions of people's lives like, like AI has done. We're able to develop and study and deploy and understand in a much more iterative, responsible way you know so within academia we can try to understand you know the scientific aspects of it we're becoming more and more acutely aware of the importance of the responsible design aspects of it we are starting to understand more and more how people psychologically and emotionally engage with these technologies we are starting to look at you know use cases, potentially like highly impactful use cases where this kind of technology could be particularly interesting and effective, so in some sense because it almost by definition has had to move more slowly and gradually we we are better able and positioned for you know the researchers basically to really try to provide you know the the scientific, the computational, the sociological, the design practices, you know, the insights on how we try to do this in a way that really makes sense for people in in their lives, right? I think if this became an overnight success and went, you know, viral, so to speak, I mean, we we would have found a lot of like, whoa, that was unexpected. Oh, you know. So anyway, maybe, you know, it's been, you know, kind of a backhanded advantage, maybe, um, So in terms of the controversial aspects, I think, you know, I don't think it's controversial, but I would say one of the big questions that now kind of drives my philosophy and my work is, you know, so much of AI out there is about driving efficiency and productivity and kind of the business of it, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I find myself asking the question, well, what does it mean to build, you know, an intelligent technology that actually helps us to flourish as human beings? What does it mean to create a technology that actually helps us to become who we aspire to be, right? So, you know, that's a lecture I have, I think, as an academic, you know, and then it, it's been guiding the research and the applications I've done where it's not about building an intelligent technology that competes or replaces people at all. It's really about trying to think about how do you, how do we design these intelligent, kind of very human-centered, you know, supporting a more holistic human experience, supporting our humanity more holistically, where our ability to think, engage, behave, again, is not just our cognitive selves. We are social creatures. We are emotional creatures. Yes, we're cognitive creatures. We're physical creatures. A lot of my, you know, my, my work, you know, the work of myself and my group and my students is showing the more you can holistically engage and support People across these very human dimensions. Not surprisingly, the more deeply people engage, and the better the outcomes. You know, they learn better. You know, they're better, better able to uh, uh, stick to a you know a, a medical intervention. They're better able to you know be more mo- emotionally resilient with a technology that engages them as like an emotional wellness coach, right? So. Um, You know, I think this is kind of one of the the big takeaways is, you know, how do we design technologies in general that really support the human experience so we can be more successful with those technologies to help us to achieve deeply meaningful goals, right? Ordering pizza is kind of like meaningful in one way, but it's not like being, you know, achieving like emotional resilience and wellness in a time of stress. To me, that's deeply meaningful. You know, being able to achieve a high quality education that opens opportunities is deeply meaningful. Ability to age with independence is deeply meaningful. I mean, these are the kinds of problems that I'm I'm the most interested in thinking about how we design technologies that help us be successful in those, those dimensions, you know and it causes us, you know, to ask questions differently, right? So when we look at personalization for instance, you know, we find again and again, there's no one size fits all, right? You know, when you want to really engage somebody in a way that helps them learn better, you really have to think, you know, about a much deeper kind of element of personalization, right? There's how you personalize not only the curriculum for instance if you're trying to learn a new skill, but but the communication and 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 the motivation and all these other aspects, right? We're definitely also starting to see, because we do a lot of, um, we're trying to also understand the psychology of how people engage with these technologies because we want to design technology that help people be the most successful, have the best outcomes, right? And so, you know, we are starting to appreciate more and more just, again, we're human beings, right? We evolved in social groups to collaborate, you know, to learn together, to come together, to, you know, again, deal with our emotional support and wellness. All these kinds of things are deeply social and collaborative processes. What we're finding, much like akin to the human literature, is the better, the closer reported relationship people report of having with a social robot is often also tied with higher outcomes. So we we know from the human literature, the closer the relationship a student feels they have with their teacher, better learning outcomes. The closer the relationship a patient feels they have with their doctor or clinician, the better health outcomes. Intriguingly, we're starting to see that same trend with a social agent like a robot. And again, the reason why is because we're just, we're we're humans, right? We're human beings. And the more, again, we think about how to design these technologies that engage us in ways that, again, bring out our our, our best ways of, of of empowering ourselves, you know, that that's I think kind of one of the more recent kind of very powerful but also provocative insights we have because, again, that's a two sided coin. We're trying to do it in ways to help people thrive and flourish, but now you're also talking about deeply persuasive systems, potentially deeply manipulative systems, right? Systems that can engender not just trust, like reliability and predictability, but trustworthiness, right? Emotional bond and connection, you know, that can be extremely manipulative, right? So, This is the provocative aspect of the work is, you know, it's again, it's two sides of the coin. The more you can engage people in these ways, you know, the better the experience, the better their outcomes, the more successful they can be. They can transform themselves, but put in the wrong hands (laughs) in control of a wrong entity who's not pro-socially minded. There are real risks there. And so that's a big reason why I'm a huge proponent of AI literacy. People need to understand these technologies. We've seen the impact in social media already. You know, again, these socially engaging agents, whether they're robot or virtual, have, you know, these same, you know, potential influences and capabilities. People need to understand that. And they need to have an informed voice on how they're designed, how they're used, how they're deployed in society. Um, so that we can be, you know, not only, you know, responsible users of these kinds of technologies and have a voice in how they're, again, used in society. But again, also, I want the next, you know, upcoming generations of designers and developers to be very ethically and responsibly minded about these things, too. So the way we educate our our engineers, our computer scientists, it's like we just do the technical, we don't, we don't really, you know, educate people in a balanced way to think about the bigger ramifications of those technologies. And so, you know, again, through our work in, in RAISE at MIT, we are trying to change that. We are designing the curriculum so that people learn the ethics, the responsible design, the ramifications to think through these things, to have the design tools and frameworks right alongside they learn about the algorithms and they learn how to build amazing things kind of with these technologies. I think that shift in how we educate is really important, you know. So, and I think in that way, that you know, our technical talent will be better able to collaborate with designers and sociologists, you know, all these other disciplines, you know, artists that are important, I think, to create, you know, kind of the most desirable, powerful, helpful technological solutions, right? So, I think that's an important shift for our field in terms of like how we train, train our people in, in these fields.
0: Mm -hmm. I think this is very excellent and Thanks for highlighting this aspect. And I want to skin that case because you mentioned it's manipulative, I think, and and risky and this kind of tools maybe some of them addictive for us. And when you compare it with personal robots and the goal is to have this kind of companion and strive in our life. When you look to the space of the design, here we have some such system manipulative. And I think if we speak about embodied this machine, if I think that's also what you're doing, the embodied social or embodied intelligence, if you can, if you can correct me in that case, w- what are the things you, sh- you think that sh- we should be done? Besides that, of course, what you're doing is very admirable. You do the literacy for AI and Kate Wolf. But what is actually really in that space you think the solution is?
1: I mean I think you know when when you you know look at this again just through the lens of the the capability and the intelligence of these kinds of technologies I think we're at a point now you know like when people talk about you know general purpose AI versus narrow AI right so I think you know in the area of you know social robotics you know kind of consumer facing robots I do think we're at the point now where the technologies and the algorithms are good enough that we can actually design some solutions that actually can bring real benefit in limited ways, right, in scoped kind of limited ways. Um, And we're seeing use cases examples, you know, and certainly in the academic literature and, you know, increasingly slowly, you know, some commercial examples. Where, again, it's kind of like narrow, scoped, we can see some real benefit. Of course, there's like a long way we have to go to creating kind of our, you know, the the anthropomorphic robot of our Star Wars or Star Trek visions, right? We got a long way to go in so many areas, right? But... I'm encouraged in that I don't think we have to have solved all of that to actually start to create things that actually, again, bring real benefit. Right. I do think we can start doing that now. I think, you know, a lot more of, um, the challenges are probably, I mean, yes, they're hard to already, they are hard to technically create, obviously, but all of the other facets around, you know, again, the responsible design, the ethics, you know, um, how you deal with you know privacy security? I'm like these are also the really kind of challenging things that we need to get right, um, and probably it's good for us to cut our teeth on that on simpler systems, <laughs> you know. So you know, I think in some sense we're in a really exciting time because I think we can create things with again the the technologies and algorithms we have that are compelling. And there's still a, a long, long, long way to go on, on all of these, all of these dimensions that we've talked about in terms of, you know, much more flexible, much more generalizable intelligence, you know, agents that can actually converse with people versus be transactional voice controlled systems, which is largely what we have right now. You know, we're basically commanding these systems with their voice. We're not having a conversation. We're not building a relationship over time, you know. In our work, when we look at things like education, health, emotional wellness, and so forth, I can tell you, people are—they are they're desiring those capabilities. They are frustrated, you know, with just transactional, personified AI systems because they just go against our expectations. You know, you—you you know, talk to the agent yesterday. You expect it to remember something about what you said, so like, you're not having to like literally repeat yourself as if it's like what do you call, it, like amnesic, right, I mean, this is a very amnesic, right, or, you know, you talk to your agent in one room, it's Alexa, whatever, you go into your next room, it has no idea, right, it's kind of like, so it's like these, I mean, it's almost kind of laughable when you think about the models that people have right now, it's like the exact same persona, but no context awareness whatsoever, you know, In terms of even just you interacting with, you know, the the, the network in your home, right? So anyway, you know, we we actually did a research project looking at this very question of kind of migratable AIs and thinking about, you know, this kind of the two by two world of like, you know, identical embodiment, you know, like embodiment versus kind of like it's um, persistence of memory about you, right? So like, what have you could migrate, you know, from your smart speaker to a robot to a smart screen and it actually could sustain that relationship and the interaction over time and space in different locations versus literally it's, you know, a different persona, it's the Google, you know, at home and then it's an Alexa, you know, and the robot, you know, out, out in the world, you know, it's like you've changed embodiment, you've changed location, maybe people don't expect it to know. If you had the case where it did remember, now that's getting really creepy because why is it that the thing, you know, the Google home I talk, you know, talk to my home, you know, why is it this Alexa device now understand, like that gets spooky, right? So, anyway, these are really interesting questions when we think about that intersection of persona and what these things can remember about you across context and across time because our kind of Human assumptions are like the Star Wars vision, right? Is that there is kind of this persistent memory about you over time and so forth. But now, what if you that persona can change this I don't know. These are the these are kind of the fun, interesting questions. I think that, that you know, kind of is like the you know, kind of begging you know the uh, what's next for these kinds of technologies and and how we need to think about again the psychology of engagement and the ethics of the, those kinds of design decisions. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a good point. Maybe I would like to ask Then that case, do you think embedding emotion and, of course, consciousness and sentience, still maybe mystery to understand how it could be in machine learning or AI? Do you think it's necessary to have this actual emotion if you really have been that as we are human instead of using effective computing, for example? I don't know what you really thought about that. The emotion, the real emotion, as you.
1: I mean, the, the question of emotion is really fascinating because I mean, I can just tell you, like from all my conversations over time and designing these technologies, you, you kind of start to appreciate kind of like what are people kind of really getting at when they express concerns or confusions and so forth. And I think, you know, part of my mental model of this has always been We live in this world of many different kinds of intelligences, many different kinds of creatures, dogs, cats, bird, right? Many different kinds of entities that all have their niche of intelligence. And in some of those cases, their niche elements of emotion, right? Dog emotion are not human emotions. Dolphin emotions are not human emotions. We don't expect them to be. It's interesting when we talk about robots, and I think largely because of our science fiction, the assumption seems to be robots should have human emotions. And to which I have to say, robots will never have human emotions. They're not human. (laughs) Why? I mean, humans have human emotions, right? So there's kind of this conflation of it's not real or authentic emotion unless it's human emotion. And yet we don't expect that of our dogs or our cat. You know what I mean? So there's kind of this conflation, I think. I think when people talk about the authenticity and then like you just program it in kind of misgiving, I, my sense of it is people feel that emotions are earned. They're not designed in, but you go through a life experience trajectory. Things happen to you. You learn and change from those experiences, and in that way, the emotional responses and things that you have are really grounded in the fact that you have experienced them, and you kind of like, you've earned them, <laughs> they were not just given to you, so I think this is also kind of this, when you... Dig under the surface, Zach, when people say, but you can't just program in emotions. I think what they're saying is emotions are earned. They're earned through the school of hard knocks, they're earned through experience. And I don't think they're authentic or real unless they're grounded in actual lived experience or you know, lived what's lived for a robot. I mean, experienced over time, over circumstance, over context. I think that's another thing that I think people are really getting at when they make a comment like, you can't just program them in. So you know, I have always been kind of of the opinion that robots can absolutely have authentic, genuine emotions, but they will be robot emotions, (laughs) you know, and you could argue there's primordial kind of precursors in social robots today, you know, I, 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 I am not going to say I don't. I don't know if any colleagues of mine would say social robots have authentic social robot emotions. I think they we have primordial elements of that, you know. And I think um, as these systems become more autonomous, able to interact and remember and engage over longer periods of time and, and learn and evolve, I think we're going to start to feel like they're getting to be more authentic for what a robot is, you know, I kind of I kind of think that's gonna be also just part of the evolution. I think, you know, a lot of the early thinking, interestingly, right, about emotions in AI were very oriented towards intelligent decision making. Right. And so emotions kind of have all of these different dimensions, right? There's the role of emotion and effect in intelligent decision making, right? So we have these different kind of emotional states that help facilitate different kinds of decision-making in different kinds of contexts. They lead to more intelligent behavior. I think a lot of the early modeling, a lot of the early work was looking at it from that that lens. So emotion as it pertains to more sensible, not intelligent, more sensible, I guess, decision-making. There is the deeply internal aspect of emotion. And I think when people say emotion, that is the dominant thing they're thinking about, is what is my emotional experience as a conscious individual? What do I feel, and how could a robot ever feel these things? You know, that's getting into qualia. And it's embodied, right? You know, and there's, you know, you know. I think we could kind of poke and prod at that and start to kind of build those kinds of attributes probably into machines also, if you felt they were really critical. But then the other aspect of, Emotion. That's also really critical for us as human beings, as a social species, is the interpersonal dimension, and there we are absolutely, you know, building systems that are engaging people in the social dynamic, affective space, right? And we are able to, again to design these systems where people's behavior can affect the internal affective computing processes within a robot, change its behavior, change how it learns. And we can see, you know, through a lot of our kind of case studies and applications, the effective social behavior of a robot towards a person is, is yes, shaping human behavior attitude. So we're so we are absolutely exploring in very important and ethically relevant ways the interpersonal space. Of emotion between people and robots, right? So again, when I think about emotion, I think about all these different kinds of dimensions. I think most people, when they say emotion, they mean the deeply personal introspective. But emotions, you know, for us as human beings and for other species, it's it's bigger and broader than that, right? So I think we just need to be more, you know, kind of more reflective in when we use the word what do we really what do we really mean, what are we really saying? So anyway, that's just kind of some of my perspectives. of what I've been learning and kind of teasing apart when I hear people kind of express concerns or reservations or, or skepticism like these are the, the I think it's these kind of layers and, and nuances that I I'm I'm learning I think through those conversations
0: mm-hmm. that's a good point maybe on the skew there's something was counterintuitive in the studies you have been doing in that personal robot was human maybe something was counterintuitive maybe you I don't know, the behavior or maybe the interaction between the human and person robots. Do you have any moments you can recall that was counterintuitive or maybe you didn't understand what's going on here? Do you have any moments like this?
1: So counterintuitive moments. So, um, I think if you approach this, you know, at the gestalt kind of hypothesis that human beings, we are human beings (laughs) and our brains and our bodies and emotions work in human ways that chances are when people interact with social robots, they're going to behave as people, (laughs) like people, right? And they're probably going to interact with the robot in human familiar ways. And they may project and et cetera, et cetera, based on our expectations of what it's like to interact with social others, whether they're people, whether they're companion animals, right? We just have these kinds of expectations. So I think that's kind of the first pass hypothesis in terms of, you know, if you start from that promise, the interesting question is when, do, when does that, when does that kind of start to diverge or, 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 or fall apart? You know, so some of that is, well, if the robot just can't even keep up with the interaction and just like, you, you, can't, you can't interact with it socially because it's just incapable. So we see certainly examples of that. The latency is too strong the expressive behaviors are counterintuitive. You don't understand what they mean. You know, So I, you can have situations like that. I think um, things that have surprised me more have been less of the counterintuitive and more about how deep it goes, right? So we have been designing social robots that engage young children as personalized, learning companions to develop language and literacy skills. And of course, the reason for that is because early childhood is an absolutely critical time for education. In the United States, we do not have a national early childhood education program, which means a minority of our students attend a quality preschool, which means a minority of our students are actually entering kindergarten ready to learn. So there's a huge social injustice there. Because if you start kindergarten behind, it's really hard and expensive to catch kids up, right? So there's just a very kind of social justice practical you know, reason why we're, we're trying to look at, at, at early childhood around language and literacy skills. So children of that age are not going to learn by reading, and they're not going to learn by typing on a computer. <laughs> they learn through social interaction and play. So from a social robotics technical kind of challenge, it's also really, really interesting, right? You know, children, and plus, children—they're kind of just going to go with the flow, right? They're not going to be metacogniting, or oh, is this a robot? Does it really, you know? They're just going to go with the flow and kind of interact with it, you know, kind of at face value. So that's interesting, right? So there's a lot of kinds of things that you know, as a research question, you know, as you know, in terms of trying to understand that the benefits to learning and education, the outcomes, like you know, a lot of that, you know, I think makes a lot of sense, okay. What we have been discovering that, of course, again, going back to the principle that humans are humans, we learn all kinds of things from each other. We don't just learn knowledge and skills. We learn attitudes, right? We learn all kinds of things. So we have discovered if you design a social robot to engage children as a peer-like companion, and you do that well enough, So children actually see the robot. They're not confused. They don't think it's a human friend. They understand it's a robot. But they still see it as kind of like this peer-like entity that's a robot. That if the robot models a growth mindset, if the robot models curiosity, if the robot models empathy, Lo and behold, children start to emulate those behaviors because we tend to do that when we interact with our peers. We tend to model and emulate those of our kind of group, right? That is really fascinating because this means that you can imagine, you know, designing robots as a peer-like companion that helps to model aspirational behaviors beyond just vocabulary and decoding and those kinds of skills to things like growth mindset, right? We've been able to see that. So what this means is, you know, it's not just about building in the expressive abilities and so forth because it's fun for kids, because kids like the robot more. It actually goes deep into how they're learning from the robot also and what they can learn from the robot. So that's what I mean by some of the things that have been more surprising to me are not when things have gone counterfactually, but like, how deep it can go. And again, now that speaks to kind of again the ethical responsible design because you're like, whoa, <laughs> this goes much deeper than what people previously had thought, which is, oh, it's just about making it fun. It's just about making it engaged. It's not, it is deeper than that. So if you if you do it the you know, if you do it the right way, if you you know. So anyway, it's been more about that I would say. Um, I think the interesting twists around social robots in particular, you know, and again, when we do our, our AI literacy work with kids, we've actually like, we, we've actually done this study where we're like, you know, what if you accompany children who might live with a social robot for like a month and kind of get that experience of what that's like living with their robot plus giving them just a coding curriculum where they can code that social robot, right? living with the robot plus getting um, uh, an AI kind of literacy curriculum, so you kind of understand conceptually how it's designed, You know what are the differences and how children perceive the social robot in those different kinds of situations, right? So when you kind of couple their lived experience with the conceptual knowledge and direct experience with potentially programming it or just learning about it or doing all of that, right? Interestingly, what we seem to be finding is it doesn't matter how much kids have conceptually learned about AI or have coded the robot, when they interact the robot in an interpersonal kind of way, that is kind of like robust in and of itself. Things, I think people would have thought that would have changed right like so you interact with the robot and it's kind of like this social agent but then you learn about how it works and you've coded it now of course you know it's just a machine and so when you interact with it you're going to treat it just like a machine no that's not what we see at all (laughs) they still interact and engage with it and talk about it as a social agent because we're human beings I think we're activating that social brain of ours right so that has been interesting I think the first time I think someone's like really kind of systematically tried to tease that apart the privacy thing is very interesting, right? So when you talk about trust and trustworthiness, there are now layers right, of that, right? So do you, and we have to tease this apart more in our own work, but when you ask the child questions around trust and trustworthiness, do they trust the robot, the agent, the persona, do they trust the entity the company the organization that's capturing data potentially and shaping what that robot does right there are layers now of who are you talking about when you talk about trust right so i think this is kind of complexifying the story or this question of trust trustworthiness interpersonal trust because there are potentially multiple entities at play when you introduce something like a personified AI technology into a human environment. So that is fascinating and something we're trying to understand. And again, educating people towards, because children don't understand, unless you particularly educate them around that, these layers of entity and agents And do you trust them (laughs) Mm. you know so it's you know we live in fascinating times (laughs) i want to prepare people for this time
0: (laughs) yeah yeah so since we close the end i have a few questions for you maybe the first thing if there's something in the robots you design social robots you wish to change and we be when you're thinking now, there's a feature, since you're highly inspired by science fiction, and your story is very really interesting, but when you think in your mind this feature, I wish maybe something, I don't know, from just imaginative
1: minds. And In, in terms of like social robot design, I guess, more broadly, and what I might want to change or whatever, I think the one thing I've definitely learned through, I mean, the many, 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 many social robots that we've designed over time is the design space is huge, right? I mean, again, there's this other kind of assumption that human is gold standard, right? That and you know the the goal somehow is to build a robot that is like an Android, like literally looks and talks and behaves exactly like a human being. And I can tell you what I've learned is that is not the gold standard you know you really have to think about what is what is the interaction what is the role of the robot what is the appropriate embodiment of the robot to fit the application and the user the best you know to have the best fit the best cognitive fit the best behavioral fit the best relational fit so, when we design a learning companion, again, robot for young children, yeah, you could build a little humanoid robot that looks exactly like a, a real child. But, like, why would you do that when there's lots of real children that children can actually interact with and learn from? You know, the intriguing thing is when you introduce something that's not quite like a human, but has enough of these properties like a companion animal, where children don't feel judged. So they're willing to, you know, take learning risks because making a mistake in front of your dog is not embarrassing or humiliating. You're not worried about people looking down on them when they did. They're willing to try things out because there's a sense of not, again, not being judged by your dog, right? That is a different relationship, and that is an empowering, enabling relationship in its way, right? So it's just to say it is not about building the human. Being plug compatible thing that is not the gold standard. The what you really need to do is think about it from a holistic design perspective. What is the right kind of if you're going to build a robot, you know, what is the right kind of robot and interaction and morphology and behavior and and all of that? Like that's what you need to grapple with and do well. So again, exciting because I think the design space is actually you know it's 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 as big as our imagination, right? That to me is super fun, <laughs> you know, and exciting and fascinating. So, so you know, it's not that I would want to necessarily change anything, but just to acknowledge and appreciate the 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 the, the um, creative space we have to work within and embrace that.
0: Um, yeah, great. Maybe on ask you, what is your aspiration when you think? Them. the thing you wish to achieve in your lifetime that in social worlds, you're really pioneered that, but I think when you feel very motivated and like feel, feel the passion for what you're doing, but what is the aspiration and what makes you fulfilled as well? I think you have a lot of activities in like uh, yeah, literacy, for example, there's something very, very um, admirable here, but uh, what's your aspiration? The thing that you wish to see?
1: Yeah, so I would say, you know, if we- if we kind of look at the, the trajectory, I would say, of how we've been designing called the personal technologies, you know, from, you know, the desktop computer to connecting it to the internet, to mobile devices, to smart speakers, right? That trajectory has all been kind of like increasingly capable, increasingly intelligent tools, right? Essentially tools, right? the social robot dimension is on a different a different dimension it's about building a, a technology that engages us more like a helpful companion that is more that it is a very different kind of vision than a useful tool right and you know when we look at these challenges on global aging society you know equitable, high quality education for all people, you know, uh, you know, healthy, you know, you know, chronic disease management's effective for everyone, right? The thing that we see that's consistent across all of them is, you know, high quality social and emotional support is actually a really, really critical piece, again, of engaging human beings to be empowered to engage and to have the best outcomes for ourselves. So right now, people, human beings in general, like, you know, that is, that is the, the best we have, but we are not scalable. We are not affordable, right? We are not able to train enough professionals to meet the ever-growing demand. We will never be able to give every child a personal tutor at their beck and call, right? We just can't do that. You know, we want to be able to support our human networks of care and education. So we want to augment those human professional networks. But we need to augment and expand them dramatically to have greater equity and opportunity for all people. That is where I think that the socially and emotionally intelligent AI really could be truly transformative. Right? It's all around the equity and the efficacy and the experience that is very human-centered of what we need as human beings to be successful, that is affordable and scalable. To me, that's, that is what I would love to achieve <laughs> at some level, that minor thing, you know. But to me, that's the opportunity that's always been, I think, the much bigger, more ambitious opportunity for this kind of technology that is quite different from a smartphone and a smart speaker and a computer, you know, quite different, but powerful in its unique ways of being able to engage us as human beings if we can do it effectively and responsibly. Um, so that's that's the big vision. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, good question also, there's advice was given to you, maybe it was a life-changing advice given to you or maybe advice you would love to give for people listening whatever you like advice given to you or something you you can share here
1: you know so my advice in general is um human beings like we are precious and Meaningful and really complex, and whatever we try to design or build or engineer to try to help make this world, this planet, a better place. And I would say not just for people, but for all living things. I think we need to always keep the values and the primacy around the living, the people like these are the most important things, and um. The science and all of that and the innovation is super exciting and impressive and powerful, but we have to get it, we have to get it right for those who are going to be impacted, who are going to be not just using these technologies but will be impacted by these technologies. And um, it's demanding that we need to be more holistic in our education and our views and who we collaborate with. Um, to be able to design these technologies that I think are actually going to really make a positive and meaningful difference. You know, the the, the AI genie is out of the computer science, <laughs> beyond the computer science bottle now, right? Um, so my advice would be, you know, a lot of the world's most challenging problems are going to happen at the intersection of multiple disciplines. You know, um, you need to have deep expertise in in some areas, but you also need breadth and empathy and perspective to be able to appreciate and collaborate, other ways of knowing, other ways of thinking about what rigor is, other ways of what success is. You know, and I think the way we educate people today, it's it's still a little too siloed. We need we need to break down those silos. So that's my advice is don't be don't educate yourself in a silo and always first and foremost be a human being, <laughs> be an empathetic human being. Uh will serve you well. <laughs>